0: Live from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I am your host, Sean McCraney. We pray uh, that the true and living God will be with all of us tonight, this New Year's Eve, 2013. Gosh, I'm glad this year is almost over. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, how about we begin with a thought-provoking quote for you to consider? Run it, Brandy it says he who begins by loving christianity more than truth will proceed by loving his sect or church better than christianity and end in loving himself better than all ooh very thought-provoking we're going to lean more and more toward that quote in 2014 so it's the last day of the year last show of 2013 what a year it's been it began with me opening my big fat mouth and it's going to end the same way uh we've reached people for the lord and we have ticked off enough people to fill a catholic diocese yes but we're still here and quite frankly better off than we've ever been in terms of direction clarity and purpose we stand more dedicated to god and his ultimate purposes And we are more fervent in worshiping him in spirit and in truth. We've matured a bit in Christ, we hope, realizing now more than ever the honor, privilege, and blessing it is to be part of his body and to possess truth that grants life eternal. More and more of the ministry is about sharing truth no matter how it comes, less and less about fighting and apologetics and division. Yes, we will always try to stand for truth because to fail to do so would not be loving. But we pray the Lord will continue to work on me and you as we try to give God a chance to make sense, especially through the new Christian television programming we're gonna be doing in 2014. It's an exciting prospect as we're launching our own unique television station here on March 1st of this year. Now, anybody in the television business uh, is gonna laugh at our description. We're calling it the Heart of the Matter Television Network. and uh, they would laugh because when I say television network, I'm talking about a local station uh, that will broadcast here in Utah on, live, on broad, uh, broadcast television just along the Wasatch Front. That's our network, but uh, it'll reach about a quarter of a million people, and even though it has limited distribution, we're going to do our best to make it Uh, right, do it right, so we can get picked up by cable and direct and dish in the future. And so I promise that we'll do all I can to make it right in a few areas. I talked about this before. Content, we're gathering up the best exegetical teachers of the Word. Uh, Vernon McGee, that's all audio. That'll play throughout the night for people who can't sleep. Chuck Smith, his verse-by-verse teachings will be on there. John Corson, uh, uh, Les Feldick. All of these guys are lining up, and it's all Bible teaching. It's none of this other stuff, and we're really uh, excited about that. Also, we hope that the effort will be a best in approach, and we will focus everything uh, we can on making uh, biblical Christianity reasonable, rational, and yet still amazing. Why do this? Because we get your emails, and we understand the score out there. We got these two emails this week. This one is from Jerry in Canada. It says, it's a little long, but it says, I've been watching you for the past four years or so off and on. After a long hiatus, I went to your website and watched all your videos on evangelicalism. I have to say you are completely right in what you were talking about. Interestingly enough, I was raised Anabaptist, Mennonite brethren, and spent most of my early life as a Mennonite, but have been in all kinds of churches, both large and tiny. When I hit my 20s, I got bored of the old traditional way of doing church. I was raised in and joined a 7,000-person strong megachurch in Calgary. I spent 12 years there and saw firsthand how mega churches operate from the ground up. And just as you said, they literally are run like big corporations. As you said, the church is supposed to equip genuine believers to serve Christ. But at this place, I would say the wheat to tear ratio was about one to three. People flocked to this church from all kinds of backgrounds and yet the gospel was never presented in its entirety. I can tell you that megachurches are the perfect place for non-believer or marginal Christian to hang out. It was common practice for us singles to hit the nightclubs and bars after church with friends from this church and then get plastered. There was tons of premarital sex going on since people were constantly hooking up or getting dumped at this church. The dating scene there was about as carnal and superficial as it could get. I can honestly say that my time, all-time spiritual low, was spent attending this so-called seeker-friendly church. The leadership was spineless and really didn't care. They only wanted to protect their jobs just like at a company. As long as the numbers, money and people were up, the leadership was happy. So you don't have to apologize for all your views on this, as the fruit of the seeker-friendly tree is utterly rotten in my opinion. You also are right on your regards to the bogus healing and prosperity gospels. I can't even begin to calculate how many people have been hurt by both of these movements. You're absolutely right that there is something smelly in the evangelical woodpile. The two movements were also, not so coincidentally, the same ones which dominate the Christian airwaves, which may have led to you losing those stations. I can't believe, I've been around it my entire life. You don't have to apologize for anything because of all these problems. Uh, you have confronted perhaps you feel that you are not the person to do it which may be the case in any case God bless your decision may God direct you uh your ministry and it wasn't my call it's not my call to pick on the Christian churches but it is my call to Try to present good Christian television, and that's what we're going to do. So, of course, we're not going to limit to Christian issues. Our primary focus is going after LDS issues. And, and, and at this point in the ministry, these things are absolutely interrelated. Take a look and listen to this recent email from Heather Garcia. It says, I just wanted to tell you, I left the LDS church almost two years ago, and to find a clean, full Bible-believing church has been the biggest struggle yet. I am so careful to never be led by another wolf in sheep's clothing, so I really have my guard up. I have gone to 24 churches in that time and I'd say there were, there were three that were clean. I see so much of 2 Thessalonians 2:3 in Christianity right now, it's hard to want to go anywhere. Is it a problem bringing people, it is a problem bringing people out of Mormonism to dump them in some heretical church where literally Satanist could be, in the, could be the pastor pretending to be a Christian. It happens. It does need to be discussed and at least warn the Mormons coming out. I was Mormon one Sunday, Christian the next, and attended the river with Pastor Rodney Howard Brown in Tampa, Florida. Wow, yeah. So a little heads up is a good thing. I don't know who Rodney Howard Brown is, but in terms of helping to warn and equip and address lds issues through this sort of programming count heart of the matter television network in and then we're also going to focus on unique appearance as i said graphics music uh are instead of doing typical stuff we're going to have stand-up humor stand-up comedy in between teachings in the bible that is christian comedy so to speak art thought uh, provoking quotes and uh gr- exhilarating interviews a lot of dynamic stuff to get the mind going. And finally, we hope to be the best in terms of the business model, which means we're not gonna charge an arm and a leg for those ministries or churches to air their stuff. We won't even charge a little finger, to tell you the truth. We wanna keep it so that it's just not about the money, and if we ever get off that course, uh, shoot us. So uh, all that being said, take a little look at a sizzle reel. So there it is, look forward to it, March 1st, 2014. Now listen, tonight what we're gonna do is get right into it. I've got a ton of stuff to talk about relative to our topic so we can finish this deal and move on to new pastures beginning next week. 2014 and so i'm going to go halfway we're going to open up the phone lines if there happens to be anybody on new year's eve to call in we'll take those calls and then i'm going to continue with information to get make sure you get it out this is really going to be an archive show the people who are going to suffer in this because there's probably not many people watching live are going to be our live studio audience there's about eight people here and they're going to be dying by the time we're done they're going to be full of hearing my voice with that let's have a word of prayer Father God, we seek that your spirit will be with us in spite of uh, myself and in what we're doing. We just pray that you will help us clearly hear uh, the possibility, the potential of the uh, final message tonight. We love you. We seek you in truth and in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's wrap this gig up, Jeff Waite. The question we have been asking is punishment for rejecting God's son in this life eternal. That has been the question. And Calvinism says, yes, it is, and lays the blame on God himself. That is clear. That's how it is. Arminianism says, yes, it is eternal, and lays the blame on man, because man has not been able to clean himself up and do it right. And Mormonism essentially sides with the Arminianist view. But I have suggested another view to consider. I think it's a biblical view that says God will completely in the end reconcile all people to himself through a number of varied methods, which are all, listen, all of those methods are made possible by and through the shed blood of his son only. There is no other way, and that's the difference between what I'm talking about with reconciliation and universalism. Universalism says it doesn't matter. Everybody gets to go whether you believe in Jesus or not. In the end, Christ is the only way, and so there's the difference. Now, one thing almost all of us do, including myself, because it's convenient, is to refer to hell as kind of the catch term for where everybody goes who doesn't believe in Jesus. Christians believe you go to hell or you go to heaven, all right? So I've uh, said that myself, however, in light of scripture, it's an error and it only adds to the confusion of the topic and it's frankly wrong. Going back to the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word, sheol, okay? And that is best described, sheol, as the realm of the unknown. That's what sheol means. Uh, The Hebrews took that word and they translated sheol into the grave. The pit, a place for both evil and good people. That's what hell was in the Old Testament. Sheol, a covering place, was a place for all people who died to go. Okay, first time callers only when we get to the phone. Stop graphing me, I can't concentrate. So in essence, Sheol is a covering holding tank for souls prior to Christ ascending into heaven, as described in his Gospels. Before that, everybody went to Sheol as it was comprised of a prison and a paradise, all right? Old Testament, people died. They went to paradise in Sheol or they went to prison. The Old Testament translators frequently called it hell, all right? But remember, it was a place for all disembodied spirits. In the New Testament, the word finds its equivalent in the Greek word Hades. Uh, Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New. And English translators refer to it, Hades as hell. However, when we read in Revelation 20:14 that the keys of Hades, the, the keys to the doors and hell itself will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. So we can see that hell is a temporary place. Hades is a temporary place and the lake of fire is a completely different one. All right? So they're not synonymous. I'm gonna sell you a little bit short here. Do a research on all the words used for hell in the New Testament. Do a little study on that and it will open your eyes. Gehenna, uh, 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 Tarsus or whatever that one was, and this Valley of Hinnom and, and all of these different words. Look them up and do a study on it and it will surprise you. But just remember, the Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 says, and the sea gave up her dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So we know people who are in hell, they get out. That's the first point of this. Revelation tells us that. The best and better definition of the lake of fire is this. Is then found a few verses later. It says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death all right and whatsoever whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into that lake of fire so if we really want to argue where believer unbelievers go after this life uh first they would go to hell which is a dark pit that is is not fun to be in but it's not the burning place all right and afterwards hell gives up its dead All stand before God's great white throne. They are judged. And then Revelation says, those whose name are not found in the book are cast into the lake of fire. So at this point, the question remains, is the lake of fire punishment eternal? We know hell is not, but the question is what about the lake of fire? That's the ultimate end that scripture talks about for the people who have rejected Christ. Reading the King James, and probably your NIVs and ESVs too, we are presented with English words that tend to say in absolute terms, yes, lake of fire suffering is eternal, everlasting, endless, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For example, in the King James, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus is describing uh, the lake of fire and says, the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. And Revelation twenty ten says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how it explains it. So when you read the King James, you think, I don't know what McCraney's talking about. It says right there, it's forever and ever. Such passages lead us to believe the punishment is unending. And I don't, believe, I don't blame King James readers and other readers who see those words to say it's forever. I don't know why you're questioning that. Uh, if the king james translators were correct on that word then then you would be right i would be out of my mind but they weren't and i'm going to prove it to you tonight where we have the word eternal forever and ever everlasting in passages like this in the king james and other translations other bible translators say like young's literal translation weymouth's new testament Rotherham's emphasized Bible, the concordant New Testament, we have passages that say they will be their age abiding. That's what they say. Not everlasting, not forever and ever, not eternal, but age to age. In other words, where the King James says in Matthew 25, 46, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal, these other translations say, and these will go away into Aeonian punishment, but the righteous into Aeonian life. Or another one says, and these shall go away into the punishment of the ages, but the righteous into the life of the ages. Or another one says, and these shall go away to punishment age during, but the righteous to life age enduring. What's the difference? Does it even matter? I mean, did I just go out and find Bibles that are gonna support my position? Or does this happen, Does this mean something? And what is the deal with this focus of age abiding and punishment of the ages versus eternal punishment? Like it says in the King James. Okay, first let me say this. In the early church, from Christ ascending all the way up to 300 AD plus, in those early church fathers, the idea of eternal punishment was not talked about. The idea of punishment was talked about. The idea of correction was talked about. But the idea of burning forever and ever and ever in hell was not discussed by the early church fathers. It was Augustine who influenced the thinking that punishment was never ending and took place in actual flames of fire that burned actual flesh forever and ever and ever. Uh, and, and, and this became the teaching for century after century after century. The King James translators, when they were gathered together in the 1600s, were told, translate correctly, but make sure you translate according to uh, doctrine of today. All right? So uh, the doctrine of the day was what August, how Augustine had influenced the church. So instead of translating each Greek word the way it should be, the King James translators came in and they, they, what they said was, well, this says this, age abiding, but we need to make sure that it fits what we believe. So we're gonna use another English word to say something different. I'll give you an example of that if you're not following me. So when it comes to eternal punishment, most of the debate comes down to a Greek noun, aeon, and to the its adjective aeonas Those two words. On those two words hang the whole argument of whether the lake of fire is eternal or not. From the Greek word aeon, which we get eon, like eons of time, we get is age, and age and eons have a beginning and they have an end. All right? So in the King James, which takes this Greek word and translates. Aeon, age, which has a beginning and an end to forever and ever and eternal and into other uh, English words, a real word for word translation of those Greek terms would always say age related, age abiding, eon related, not eternal. Uh, the noun Aeon, as I said, it means age, period, a specific period of time. It has a time that begins and ends. It's not eternal. Strangely, the root word is used, when it's used in the adjective, means the opposite. And so there's some dubious question as to how aeon in the adjective suddenly came to mean the opposite of what aeon means, because the adjective means forever and ever and ever. So I would first and foremost suggest that this is an extremely questionable translation to go from the noun, which means one thing, to an adjective that means the complete, the complete opposite. But I can say this because the adjective simply does not work in many passages of the New Testament. Now let me give you some examples. You can take note of these passages, Romans 16.25, 2 Timothy 1, 1.9, Titus one two, Philemon 15, they all define uh, the uh, aionos, the adjective, as the world, as the world, the word, the Greek word for world is cosmos. In the King James, they say, we don't care if the world, the, the, the word for uh, world is cosmos. We want to, it to say world here. The word that is used is aionos, which means uh, age abiding, but nevertheless, we're going to put world in there. And they use world for the term age abiding. It's unconscionable. Let me explain it to you in another way. When we take the Greek word aeon and its adjective, we know they have a given meaning, age, age abiding. Every time the Greek terms are used, they ought to translate into age abiding, every time. It's like if you translate, uh, if, if you read the word Sean, Every time you you write the word Sean, it means Sean. It doesn't mean Fred, it doesn't mean Jim, it means Sean. So we have the Greek and every time age abiding comes up, they should have translated it as age abiding. But they said no, that doesn't coexist with Augustine's idea that people are gonna burn forever and ever. So instead of writing the punishment would be age enduring or age abiding, they wrote eternal. You see how that happened? Instead of remaining true to the definitional root of the Greek word, the King James translators took aeon and Aeonas and subjectively translated the terms depending on the context of what they thought the passage should say. Now, why would they do this? Because they were intent on maintaining doctrinal purity as they translated rather than truth. So in most cases, the practice proved non-eventful beneficial even because it helped with some uh uh some congruent understanding of the word but when it in the case of the term eternal forever and ever everlasting it fails miserably so along comes these other guys scholars and they say well we're looking at the greek we want to translate it literally they're called literal translations rotherham weymouth Young, all of those, the uh, uh, literal translations of every Greek word. So every time Aeon comes up, they write age abiding. And then when you read these translations, you have a clear understanding of what the passage meant in the original tongue. So Rotherham and friends translated, and it reads consistently regarding the Greek, and so everyone comes across the Greek word Aeon and Aeonos, we find age-related translation. The King James and others, uh, they didn't follow suit. And uh, so we have prejudicial confusion when it comes to doctrine like is punishment eternal? Because the King James translators instead translating aionus and Aeon into English words, they have muddied what the true doctrine is. 197 times in the New Testament, they take the word Aeon or aionus and this is how they translate them, okay? It means age-abiding, without a doubt. This is how they translate them. Ever, they translate aeon to ever 72 times. They translate aeon into the word world 40 times, into never, so they have an ever and a never seven times, evermore two times, and course, once. They use the word course. How does that relate to, uh, to, it's amazing. And then for the adjective, they translated the Greek word aionos into eternal 42 times, everlasting 25 times, world three times, and ever once. Only twice out of the 197 times were the Greek words translated into age, into age-related. I mean, this exact same Greek word in one place is translated eternal, and in another place it is translated never, and in another place it is translated world. Where did they get the license to do that? Because they wanted the doctrine to fit what the the church was teaching, and they did not want truth. That's the difference. 40 places in the King James where the Greek word aeon is translated world. World. Uh, The Greek word for world is cosmos, not aeon. Aeon means age. Let me give you an example of why this is important. The apostles come to Jesus and they say, when is gonna be the end of this world? That's what it says in Matthew 24. Do you know what the Greek says? When's gonna be the end of this age? Do you see the difference? So people read Matthew 24 and they say, Jesus here is describing the end of the world, and they think that all these signs are supposed to happen right before he comes, but the real question they ask is, when is gonna be the end of this age, the Jewish age? when is is jerusalem going to fall in the temple with it 70 a.d so it completely changes what the question was just by them throwing in world when age should be there so if you read these little translations we discover that the bible from the greek literally does not teach eternality of the lake of fire but an age abiding time in the lake of fire or punishment So where it says the smoke ascends up forever and ever from Jesus' mouth in the King James, it really says the smoke ascends up from the age to the age, not forever and ever. Reading the Greek properly, we would read the following passages like this, Ephesians 3.11, God has a purpose of the ages, okay? And, And he is the king of the ages, it says. You might not like that. You might like he's the king of eternity, but ages is better put, First 1 Timothy 1.17. He prepared the ages by his word, it says in Hebrews 11.3. You won't see that. You'll see the world when it comes to uh, Hebrews 11.3. Now, the biggest argument against this stance that, that people who don't like it use is, well, throughout the Bible, it describes God as eternal. He's the eternal God it describes our salvation as eternal. And because we know that God is eternal and our salvation is eternal, then we know that aeon and Aeonas must mean eternal, therefore, we're gonna stick with what we believe. But if you really read the scripture, when it says God is the God, uh, God, is God of the age, that's what it says. And when it says uh, our salvation is uh, of the age age to age that's what it says you have to be honest with the translation is God the God of the age absolutely that doesn't affect his eternality for him to be the God of the ages that he's established for humankind he's still God of uh, eternal God but people freak out and say well he's described as eternal so therefore I, I, I just have to say uh, hell is eternal too and, and they, they use that argument now, additionally, some even better points, there are several very simple Greek words that would have cleared this whole mess up had they been used, all right? Uh, katalos and operantos, they both clearly mean endless. Had any of the writers of the New Testament used either of those Greek words in association with the lake of fire or hell, we would, you would slam the door on my argument, but they never did. They clearly mean endless, everlasting in the Greek, but never are those words used when it comes to um, uh, hell or punishment. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.4 speaks of endless genealogies. That's akadalos. And Hebrews 7.16 speaks of the power of an endless life. That's aparentos. Both of those mean endless. They could have been used any time for hell or lake of fire, never were. Additionally, the Greek word "athanatos" is used for immortal and aptharsia is used for immortality and both indicate never-endingless, but neither of those clearly defined terms that mean endlessness were ever used in association with eternal punishment, never, okay? Only age-abiding is used relative to eternal punishment okay additionally there are two simple and very prevalent adverbs in the new testament which could have been used as a decisive argument ender as to whether hell is the or lake of fire is eternal or not they are a a a -A e i is how you'd say it ie and they are pantote and that means evermore neither of them are used in association with punishment hell lake of fire ever okay It's also of interest that the super strong Greek phrase, to the uttermost, okay, that could have been used any time for hell or punishment, never, ever used in scripture. Uh, It is used though, is it used to describe the lake of fire? No, it is used to describe God's ability at saving us. To the uttermost is his ability to saving us. You notice they don't use that phrase for hell or, or lake of fire, but to God and his mercy and his love. Additionally, the Greek phrase for perpetuity could also have been have used uh, uh, in association with the lake of fire and its punishment, but it is only used to describe God and his ultimate sanctification. It's for per- perpetuity. Listen, no Greek word that truly is used to describe forever, forevermore, evermore, always, endless, endless, to the uttermost, etc., is ever connected to the punishment people receive after this life. Never. Not in any instance. Okay? Consider this passage from James Hope Moulton and George Milligan, who published the vocabulary of the Greek uh, New Testament. You ready? It might be helpful talking about the Greek word, ainos. In general, the word, ainos, depicts that which the horizon is not in view, page 16. If the horizon of the extermination spoken of by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 is simply not in view, then we can see that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, can truly occur. The same all who are dying in Adam, which includes some who incur Aeonian extermination, can indeed eventually be vivified in Christ. The Bible, in fact, does not speak of judgment and condemnation, death and destruction, Hades and Gehenna, or any of these serious consequences of sin as unending. It may refer to them as not having an end in view, but none of these fearful works of God can keep him from achieving his will, 1 Timothy 2.4, reconciling all through the blood of Christ's cross, Colossians 1.20, and becoming all in all, 1 Corinthians 15.28. At that point, let's open up the phones. I don't know if anyone's watching. Uh, uh, the phone number is 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. I'm gonna continue to dish out proof until the end of the show. So call if you want, and audience here, take a nap. So let's continue by looking at the term fire now, okay? The term fire. And I'm talking about the fire as it's related to the lake of fire, which we pointed out scripture defines as the second death. There are four passages in the book of Revelation that refer to a unique thing in this fire. It's the only place it's mentioned. That word is brimstone, okay? The word is brimstone. It's Revelation 14.10, Revelation 19.20, 20.10, and 21.8. Brimstone is used there. The word brimstone has its root in the word theion, theion, okay? Now, you probably recognize the Greek word theos. That means God. The, uh, theology is a the study of God. Theion is a direct root word from, theo, from theos, and it's from God. So uh, additionally, we know that uh, theos, the, theios is, means um, uh, divine. So it's really easy to see that the word brimstone, which comes from the Greek word theion, is in the family with other Greek words used to describe God. That's the brimstone. That is where it comes from, him. Uh, In Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament, the word brimstone is identified as fire from heaven used to purify. That's brimstone. If you check Strong's Concordance or Thayer's, you will discover that brimstone is connected to God's divine power to purify, not punish. Not punish, purify. So if we have to also ask if the fire in the lake of fire, is it for purging or is it for punishing? For torture or is it for trying? Is it for cruelty or is it for correction? Ask yourself those questions. Our answer can be found when we look at the location of the lake of fire. Where we see that lake of fire will help us understand what is going on there, right? So there are passages in Revelation 14 that might surprise you uh, where the fire and where this brimstone exists, or at least who is present amidst it. You ready? Revelation 14:9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the vine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented, remember these lines, with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up in age duration, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name." So what we have there is some really interesting stuff. First of all, we see that this lake of fire is in the presence of Jesus himself. Now, if Jesus is a sadist, and he's really happy to see everybody being tortured in there, then, you know, then we got a correct picture. You know, it's in the presence of him. Or could it be that that fire and brimstone, which comes from Theos, is removing the dross, purifying, correcting those wayward rebellious souls who worship the beast and getting rid of the impurities so that they can stand being in the existence of God who is love. Uh, from these passages, we can see that those tormented in fire and brimstone are in the presence of God right there. We know from scripture that God does not take pleasure in, the, uh, ty- in any type of death of sinners. I'll prove it. Ezekiel 33:11 says, saying to them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Oh, why will you die? O house of Israel. 2 Samuel 14, 14 says something really interesting. Read this passage. In my opinion, it alludes to God and his way of redemption. This is what it says. For we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. He devises means by which to bring about those who have been banished so that they aren't expelled from him, that means forevermore. From all these passages and the information they provide, it seems we see the lake of fire as having different purposes present than we might have thought of before. I have been taught from my training at Calvary Chapel, almost every faction of modern Christianity that the lake of fire is God tormenting evil men over and over and over and over, on a spit, you know. Listen, if this assessment is absolutely correct, if the lake of fire is literal and unending, here's the point we brought out last week when a caller called. If there is no end to that punishment, the only purpose of it is to torture. You have to understand that philosophical fact. If there's an end to it, it has a purpose to bring about God's sovereign will. But if there's no end to it, There is no reason on earth to say it means anything other than torture. And God, who we describe as love, must be someone who enjoys torturing the wicked. You know, that's the only way you can look at it. But if God is love, could it be the fire felt by the wicked acts as a brimstone. It acts as a horribly disturbing presence. They don't wanna be there. It's torturous to feel that love. They have hated God. They have rejected God. And once they succumb and their knees bow and their tongue confess, they are corrected and released. I think it's very possible looking at this evidence. In other words, if those who do not receive Christ's shed blood in this life those who die unsaved are banished to torments and fire forever. The torments must be based in cruelty and torture because they have no redemptive value. There is no purpose for them just to torture. So let's take a look at that word tormented. And then we're going to pick up a phone line from Larry. In Revelation 14.10, the passage that says they will be tormented by fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and and the presence of the Lamb. You ready for this, what torment means? The word translated tormented in Strong's Vines and Thayers uh, is bassanitzo. And it comes from the Greek word and it means to rub off. That's what it means. That's what batsanitso means. It's to rub away, to remove, to put to the test by rubbing on a touchstone. Touchstones are pieces of rock or flint that are used to grind off elements or particles in the processing of alloy and other alloys and other metals and so from this definition we can see that the process in the lake of fire is not one of mindless endless torture for the sake of cruelty but one of refining purging rubbing off the evil wickedness so to speak i find this interesting because in matthew 21:44, jesus says something this is what he says in a parable of the wicked husbandmen he says therefore i say unto you the kingdom of god shall be taken from you nation of israel and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof They had rejected the true Messiah. He had come. They rejected him. They put him to death. Jesus tells them the kingdom is going to be taken from them and given to another nation, the Gentiles, who would bring forth fruit. Then he says something really interesting. Ready? He says, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So we have some meaning now of what God's purposes are. We can fall on him and break and say, Lord, save me, I'm a broken man, I'm a broken woman. Or if we wanna be rebellious, it will fall on us and grind and rub away us till we're powder. The evil in us is power, but not us. God gets rid of the uh, the wickedness. He does not kill those who embrace the wickedness. uh, uh, I would suggest that in light of the meaning of torments found in Revelation 14 and the fact that those in the lake of fire will be subject to brimstone and the fire is in the presence of God and Jesus and his holy angels, we are talking about a painful mandatory refinement, grinding down upon the willful, a grinding that produces friction simultaneously, maybe that's why they call it the lake of fire. Maybe that's why there's that friction, that heat, that misery that's going on, something to think about. All right, we have actually three calls. Let's take Larry and Orem. Larry, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Brother Sean, how you doing, buddy? Good, how you doing? Uh, Hey, I'm doing great. uh, uh, There's a
1: word, uh, penultimate, and that's how I'm feeling right now, like you've taken me to the penultimate, which isn't quite the ultimate. But this is so exciting, I can't hardly
0: stand it. Oh, praise God, Larry. Yeah.
1: Well, Sean, I just, uh, I don't, I, I just wanted to uh, uh, trip your memory here and, and ask you if you remember me giving you the book Hope Beyond Hell at your daughter's uh, premiere of the
0: girl movie in Salt Lake City. I don't remember uh, you giving it to me there, but I do remember you giving it to me. Okay. And I never read it. You say you did read it? I didn't read it. You haven't read it yet? No, because my mind. However, I did meet the author a few months ago. Jerry Buchman. My, my, uh, yeah. Okay. My, my mind was so dead set that you were wrong. I wasn't right. going to waste my time with reading that book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it, it doesn't surprise me. And obviously, the Lord is in charge of everything. Everything's in His time. Um, he's not overly concerned with you know us doing all this evangelistic work for him because he's the one that's in charge of it, he's gonna get it done. You're right. You know what I mean? Not to say that we shouldn't go out and tell everybody because like you've already stated, nobody's gonna make it that doesn't bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So you might as well get it over with, might as well do it now rather than later. Amen. You know, because yeah, there's no telling what, you know, if, if nothing else, and i and i heard from one source it might have been tentmaker or somewhere else that 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 just the jews back in the day all the jews know about the millennium they know about the thousand year rule and reign with their messiah they just didn't know it was going to be christ jesus you know and and, and so some of them they were basically led to believe that, that their punishment, if they didn't, you know, toe the line, they might miss out on the millennium. And you know what? That would be a sad thing. Even though a thousand years will just be a blip on the screen in eternity, I want to say I was there.
0: Hey, Larry, thanks for giving me that book.
1: Hey, you got it, buddy.
0: God bless you, my brother. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to David and, no, we're going to go to Leiden, Lydon, Leiden, 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 Luden in Tempe, Arizona first, and then we're gonna to go to David in Claremont, North Carolina. Leiden. Lydon?
2: Yeah, I'm here.
0: You're on the air, my friend.
2: All right, cool. Hi, Sean.
0: You're welcome. What's going on?
2: So um, I had a couple of thoughts that I was tracking on with your message, um, and I was thinking about when um, in the Bible it also states that uh, there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, Um, some people kind of think like hell is in the earth or in the face of the earth or something because it's really hot or something. But if there's going to be a destruction of, you know, earth and heaven, um, that would kind of relate to what you're saying. There's going to be a new heaven, new earth. That's that's all going to be destroyed. It can't be forever and ever.
0: That's a really interesting thought. I like it.
2: Later in the Bible, it states that it's going to be, you know, going to be made and it's going to be new and there's going to be a whole new everything. God's going to create that. So that was one of my thoughts that I had um, on there. Uh, and it kind of just uh, tracks along with what you're saying. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but then I had another thought about the, this might tell kind of a hairy topic, the predestination and stuff. And, you know, sometimes people say God made people to be bad and, you know, some theological a lot our names are written in the book of life before yeah we were ever and that kind of some um i don't know it makes people feel uncomfortable about that being chosen to be like sinners and bad off the bat and some people can be christian and you know with god so but it kind of adds more depth to what you're saying with this these terms as far as that how do i say this it's an age, or it's time, or it's just yeah. getting and it adds more a lot more depth. Put some passages up there that kind of of ages, and that, I never thought about it that way. And that's really cool. Yeah, how how those kind of tie into knots those those topics now with just a, just a little word like that and how you described it.
0: Yeah, you know it, it, the thing about it is it doesn't remove any glory. In fact, it adds glory to God. It makes our being his in this life even more sweet. And it releases you from, or me at least, from looking at someone and ever being tempted to say, you're going to burn in hell forever and ever. I mean, it just releases.
2: Yeah, that's, that's that fire and brimstone talk. That yeah. You're just going to burn in hell forever. That sounds so unloving. It sounds yeah. so damning. And, and this has like a little more light, a little more understanding to the true nature of God. And it, it's just. I don't know I got a lot out of it. I got a lot of understanding and it helps me see things in a different light that I never thought of before. So, praise that's God. Great. It's really cool that I got to learn that.
0: Thanks my that's friend. Good. Thanks for watching. God bless you.
2: God bless. Um, bye-bye. Okay,
0: bye-bye. Listen, really quickly, I got to interject this. Who if God is sovereign and God is loving and God's will is done, can Satan beat him? Can he can he steal people? Can can man beat him? Can Adam beat him? No, he, he does it. He does it, he does the work. He came down. That's why we believe in saved by grace through faith. And he's gonna continue the work, being the first fruits of that, of that harvest. There's gonna continue on more and more. <sighs> okay, let's go to David in, North, in Claremont, North Carolina. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Okay. Is uh, this Sean? Yeah. Oh,
3: hey, Sean. Hey. And I'm, not, I'm just calling because, uh, well, first and foremost, I wanted to preface this by saying I'm a long listener, fan of your ministry, and love you as a brother in Christ. You know, I just want to make sure I say that.
0: <laughs> I have a feeling something else is coming. <laughs> uh, no,
3: nothing, too, no, nothing too bad. Well, no, I, uh, you know, I, I love your perspective, and I, you know, I've got to admit I don't agree with it, but, you know, I understand where you're coming from because, honestly, who wouldn't want that to be true? You know, Calvinists are mean, no matter who you are, who wouldn't want everybody to go to heaven? So I, I appreciate your search for truth and everything, but I, I just can't get behind it. Cause you know, to, to say that it would, seems to me to say that, uh, you know, hell isn't eternal. You'd have to say that, you know, eternal life isn't eternal. since They both use the same ion, the same word. I don't know what to do with that, you know?
0: Well, they, look, we just have to take it for what it says. It uses age abiding in that sense, both for, so this is the thing that got me onto it, David. I read a passage in Hebrews, and we're studying Hebrews, and it says, Jesus Christ will be at the right hand of the Father until, that's what it says, until, and then I said, what? You mean, we have, we have a period of time where Jesus is only gonna be at the right hand of the Father, and then something else is gonna happen? And so when I read that, I thought, what, what is that telling us? There's, there's periods of time that, Who knows what goes on after that? But when I read that, we know that, so when it says age, it's just saying that God is working through men and women through dispensations and ages, and he's gonna bring about his will over the course of those. He's the God of those ages, so therefore, that's how he's described, aeon, God, eternal God is how the King James, but it's really age-abiding God. It doesn't mean he's not eternal. So we just have to be honest with the Greek word. What does it mean? Let's use it that way. That's all I'm saying.
3: Yeah. Well, I understand too. And, uh, and, and that's an interesting use of uh, that passage in Hebrews. Honestly, I, I'm post-millennial, so I, could, I could take that passage to say that Christ is reigning now, like now is the uh, millennium. And he reigns until, you know, uh, the world is won, and then he comes back. But, I mean, I understand oh, your uses of it, but... Um, yeah. I, I can't, I, yeah, I just can't.
0: That, okay, let me ask you this, okay? So, this, is, this, this might help you. There are two basic Greek words for the will of God in the Greek. Mm-hmm. There's Thelema and there's yeah. Bolema, like a bulimic. Thelema mm-hmm. and Bolema, all right? Thelema, David, is talking about his desired will, okay? Mm-hmm. And Bolema is his deliberate designed will, which will be done, okay? Mm-hmm. So answer me this. 1 Timothy 2.3.4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In that sense, the Greek word for who will have all men to be saved, it's philema. That's his desires. Okay? Now, let me read you another passage. 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men concern account slackness. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what that is? Thelema or Uh, Bolima?
3: Not sure. I don't have the Greek text. It's
0: it's Bolima. And you know what that means? That is his purposed will. He will not allow that any should perish. Do you realize that that is in scripture in the Greek? So we have from both 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 and 2 Peter 3, 9, it's not his desire that any would perish and it's not his prescribed purposed will that any should perish. Check those out. Yeah, my only
3: problem with with the Peter passage is that the whole argument with that passage is that's the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Well, if Jesus is waiting for his second coming... Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, and he means everyone everywhere.
0: He'll never return because there's already souls in hell. Okay. However, if you if you follow the pronouns and the okay. attack, there's always
3: a you versus us. If you uh, say uh, all, as in all of the elect, that makes perfect sense.
0: Okay. So here's my my response to that, David. I'm i I'm a, I'm a partial preterist, and I believe when Jesus described in Matthew 24 that he was coming back, he came back in 70 A.D. and and Scripture was fulfilled. Then were all saved then.
3: Uh, no, no, he's speaking of the uh, the second coming, the Peter factors. I'm also a partial preterist, but you, you got you got to make a distinction between which one's the se- A.D. coming and which one is actually the second coming. Uh, the computer, I think, is pretty clear that it's the second coming.
0: Yeah, I think, and I think, I think that the second coming. What when the apostles said, "Lord, when is what's going to be the sign of your coming?" They were talking about the second coming, and He answered them, and it was transpired in seventy A.D. That was the second coming. We've been waiting for 2,000 years for the second coming. It happened. But now I'm digging myself in a hole that's going to... We're going to lose everybody on Earth. There's a blind, deaf, limbless man who's a fan of this show now. That's what we've come down to, David. No, I, we would have to talk about this more because it's taken us off. And, and I, your point is good with Second with Peter. But all, all I know is that it's not his, his, his purpose will that any should perish. We've had people die between now and his second coming that we're waiting for, right? Have any of them gone to hell? Are any of them going to perish? Oh, I, again, I,
3: uh, I think the any or anyone is not doesn't mean anyone everywhere. I think it's all without distinction, not all without exception.
0: Hey, he gives us, those two Greek words are very clear. So people have died, we're wait, if, you're, if we're gonna accept your idea that we're waiting for the second coming, the real second coming, people have died. Are, are any of them going to the lake of fire? We would have to say yes according to traditional Christian thinking. And this says no, his purposed will is no, they will not. It's not his desire or his purpose.
3: Yes. Again, I, I think you, you misheard me. He, he, his will is not any of the elect, any of his people will perish, which they
0: won't. Oh, the, okay, okay. Yeah. Again, I know you're not going to agree with
3: that much, Warren, okay. But that's my take. But again, I mean, they're not essentials, and I don't think they're not. Time. I'll, I'll email you, but.
0: They're not, but David, let me ask you a couple more questions. We're almost out of time. David, okay. is God sovereign?
3: Absolutely.
0: His will is always done? Absolutely. Is his will that all men would be saved?
3: No, not all men everywhere in all of history. Not. Okay,
0: Jesus says, "Strays the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it. So is it his will that only a few of all the billions of people would be saved?
3: I don't think it's a few because in Revelation, it's myriads upon myriads. And if you read the next chapter after Jesus says that, he says many uh, come to heaven. So you you got to take it in context. Okay, but yeah, so. Yeah, but now, as a post-millennial, I say there's, there's, uh, in, when Jesus comes back, there'll be far more in heaven than in hell. But even if I was an all-millennial, Okay. say that there is a lot of, in hell, I would say, again, no, it's Jesus' purpose to save a, okay. a remnant.
0: Okay, a final question. God is sovereign, so our man, our choices mean nothing. His will is done. His will, is, is he love?
3: Absolutely, but he's okay. a holy love, a, a love that's uh, higher love? than our
0: thoughts and our ways. Okay, he's higher than our thoughts and ways. Jesus said, you'll give your son, a f- uh, if your son says, I'm hungry, will you give him a rock? Or will you give him a fish? You'll give him bread, right? If you'll do that being evil, what do you think my father in heaven is like? So you're, you're putting God in the state that he is, he, is, he is more stern or more, more uh, angry or vicious than we are. And that's not true. Would you ever want any of your kids? Would you ever give up on your kids going to hell forever and ever and ever? Uh, well, I mean, quite honestly,
3: no, but again, I'm not God. God has. You know, Reverse
0: it. You're not God. Like That's it. the point. You're not God. That's the point. He is, and He is love, as John describes. He is love. He is not human that likes viciousness. He is love. So how could you how could you believe that you would have the compassion to save your own children, but God does not have the compassion and love to save His?
3: So God can't so God can't love in different ways than humans because he can't love in a way we don't understand.
0: He loves in a superior way, as as proven by superior, Jesus. Yeah,
3: and I would at times even beyond our. Able to reason and, and think. So yeah. even if we don't understand his love in the way
0: that Yeah, but we gotta look at we gotta look at David, what Jesus did and in, in his love. They were killing him, he said, forgive them. They were slapping them, he was he was giving his he did everything on that cross showing what love is. If that was God showing us in flesh what love is, can you imagine what it would be in the spirit? It is not this picture that we think, it's not David. He is, he is, and love, does it ever fail? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never fails. You're suggesting that God, who is love, fails to bring about everybody back to him. I don't believe that.
3: Yeah, yes. well, because I don't think it was his purpose to bring everybody everywhere back to him. But, uh, why? But again, again,
0: why would it not be his purpose? Well,
3: why do we have to have an answer? Why, why can't God be God and he have a purpose? To, sit, to save an
0: elect. Because we want, to, we want to pursue, we want to search the scriptures to provide every man an answer. We want to look. And, and so far what I see is an inconsistency with Calvinism and its answers, Arminianism and its answers, and what I read in scripture. And what I read in scripture shows me a loving God who does have a hell and a lake of fire, who does purge, who gives people free will, who knows all things by, he has predestined certain people to do certain things. But in the end, everything will be brought about to him. And I can't see it any other way. But we'll continue to talk.
3: Okay. No, sure. I, I would love to, Sean.
0: All right, David. Thanks for watching, my friend.
3: Oh, no, problem. Bless you,
0: Sean. Love you, brother. Love you, too. Thanks. Bye-bye. It's tough stuff, I know. Uh, not easy, and it's so full. There's, I got another eight pages here of more stuff, and maybe we'll try to hit on that at the beginning of next year. Uh, but listen, the bottom line, Jesus came, God so loved the world, he sent his son. You believe on him now, and the blessings are manifest. They are manifest in your life. I'm a living testament. I'm the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. He brought me up, he brings anybody up. And he will give you a new life, He will, you will escape uh, hell and the lake of fire. You'll be part of the first resurrection. Being a Christian now in this life is worth a hundred trillion dollars compared to going through the lake of fire, which is, and then coming out, which is worth five you know, that's just the comparison. So don't get me wrong. This doesn't take away from evangelical outreach. This doesn't take away from helping and serve. This doesn't take away at all. I'm just trying to say we need to rethink about who God is and how he has gone about to try to bring us to him. We love you. Join us next week as we start 2014 on a new, fresh direction, and we'll keep pursuing the LDS Christian debate. We'll see you then. Do you have that up there?